All right, welcome to this episode of Moments in Leadership. I hope you like that intro jam, which is a mashup of Bob James's 1982 hit Shambuzi and Rakim's 1997 Guess Who's Back. Okay, special thanks to Jeremy Kofsky, as always, for your help in getting this episode put together. Man, you are a massive help, and I really appreciate it. I want to first begin by personally thanking all of you who support me on the Supercast subscriptions. I've got some new ones since the last episode. Jason Black at the Buy Me a Beer level, Vice Admiral Bill Murs at the Hot Wash level, Janie Gutierrez at the Hot Wash level, Stephen Liljeberg at the Hot Wash level, Joshua Yamamoto at the Buy Me a Beer level, Jeremy Kofsky at the Hot Wash level, thanks brother, and Corporal August D'Angelo, who's a squad leader out with Kilo 3-1 at the Hot Wash level. In fact, I got an email from Corporal D'Angelo, and he's been sharing this podcast with the other squad leaders in his company, as well as the Marines in his squad, to listen to and have discussions about. Hey man, I appreciate it. I'll get you some stickers and the new patches I got coming in out to you soon, brother, and Semper Fi. Okay, everyone's support of this project is really a big deal, and whether it's sharing on social media or leaving reviews or spreading the word across the workspaces or even just sending me encouraging emails and DMs, I really just appreciate it. I have no sponsors or anything like that, so donations go to covering some of my costs and producing the episodes, and the effort in sharing, reviewing, etc. helps spread the word, and you all should know that this project is having a real impact, so thank you. With only 28 total guests, the project has crossed the 73,000 download mark. There are 222 five-star reviews on Apple and 250. 54 on Spotify. The most recent review on Apple was from an active duty Sergeant Major who uh, let me know that the senior leaders are listening to it too. So really appreciate that. Be sure to drop me a review on either Apple or Spotify. Everybody listening to this knows the deal. So I appreciate it. But anyway, everyone listening and everyone helping me with at any level of support, whether it's sharing or subscribing is making this possible. So I'm grateful to all of you. This episode is with retired Marine Corps Colonel Stephen Davis. Colonel Davis is a native New Yorker. He was born and raised in Westchester County and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in April of 1981 as an infantry officer. Now, throughout his career, he has commanded multiple platoons and companies, including a rifle company during Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm between 1990 and 1991. He commanded an infantry battalion in Afghanistan in 2002, and then he went on to command Regimental Combat Team 2 in Iraq in the 2005-2006 time frame. And for those of you who have listened to retired Major General Dale Alford's episodes, you'll remember Colonel Davis was then Lieutenant Colonel Alford's regimental commanding officer. So that's the connection there. His staff tours generally involve strategic planning and operations, interagency operations, and then liaison with American embassies throughout the Middle East and East Africa. And key among them were he was the director of the drill instructor school at Marine Corps Recruit Depot Paris Island, South Carolina, which he talks about in this episode. Deputy Director J-5 for plans and liaison in the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, over in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Deputy Director, Strategic Initiatives Group, and Senior Aid to the Commandant of the Marine Corps at Headquarters Marine Corps. He was the Director CJ-5 for Plans, Liaison, and Civil Military Operations at Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa, or CJTF HOA. Assistant Chief of Staff G-3 Plans and Operations at 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force and Deputy Commander, Marine Corps Special Forces Operations Command, basically MARSOC. He's a distinguished graduate of the Marine Corps Command and Staff College with a Master's in Military Studies, a distinguished graduate from the Army War College with a Master's in National Security and Strategic Studies, and a graduate of the Joint Forces Staff College. He retired after more than 30 years on active duty service in July of 2011. Since retiring from active duty, he provides subject matter expertise on Special Operations, United States Marine Corps, and serves as a Senior Advisor or Operations Officer for multiple U.S. combatant command and coalition force special operations exercise both in the U.S. and overseas. Finally, he instructs at U.S. SOCOM interagency communications course for highly screened and selected individuals preparing to deploy on strategic 
strategically significant missions overseas. He and his wife Anne split time between St. Petersburg, Florida and Matthews, Virginia. And then with that, retired Marine Corps Colonel Stephen Davis. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the pod and being willing to share your story. I'm really excited for the for this interview and we've been working on it for a long time. You know, I know you're from New York, so it's very difficult to get you to talk, but I will pull some questions out of you, I promise her, and, and you know, I'll make this as painless as possible for you. Well, Dave, thanks for having me on this wonderful initiative you got going. Thanks for doing it for all of us. Hopefully we can be additive to the audience out there. Absolutely. Well, I always like to start off the podcast. Everybody just heard your bio, but can you just take a minute and briefly talk about how you got into the Marine Corps? And as you do that and you tell your story about where you came from and why you became a Marine, if you can also in the same context, think about it from the standpoint of after a plus 30 year career, what is it that you think today's men and women want out of becoming a Marine versus when you and I came in the in the 80s? Yeah, the uh, I've got uh, a rather unusual life track. So uh, I graduated high school in 1971, wound up a, attending Clarkson College of Technology. Might must be noted that's an engineering school and I was in social sciences. Despite uh, a good grade point average in lettering and soccer, ice hockey and lacrosse, I was up there to play lacrosse and hoping to play hockey. And most of all, wait until the uh, draft was held in 1971. My number came up 355, so I was never getting drafted. Subsequently, I uh, quit school after my second year and spent four years roaming around the country in a van with a dog doing construction and bartending and ultimately a lot of ski bumming out in South Lake Tahoe. Eventually, I went back to New York for a wedding, ran into an old boss. He said, I need a foreman on a construction crew down in Manhattan. And I said, I got to go to school. I got to finish my degree. He made the arrangements to give me a lot of money to work during the day. And I went to school full time at night. So Come 1980, when I graduated, I was engaged to a lovely little lady from Texas. I had nothing on my resume, and every one of my friends was a former Marine. So at age 27, I thought, I'll go into the Marine Corps. Now, that might not speak well of a Fordham education, but that's how I got into the Marine Corps at age 27. Right. So you're, you're probably the old man in your OCS uh, platoon and TBS platoon. They were calling you grandpa, probably. Yeah, pretty much. But we had a unique set of situations then, and I, I can't explain why, but that particular OCC, the 116th class, had lots of old guys. A lot of Vietnam veterans, enlisted guys that had come back, wanted to be officers, had a very inspirational platoon commander named Hirsch Hernandez. It was fun. It was, you know, OCS was a great time. I know that's kind of counterintuitive. Uh, I had taken a trip down there with a friend of mine who kind of had walked me into this business when I decided I wanted to go. Initially, I thought I would go down to Paris Island to do three years enlisted. You know, the game plan was to go down there, get become a Marine, and then uh, three years later, get out, get on with life. And uh, he said, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to Paris Island. You're going to Quantico. So he took me down to Quantico. And I will always remember coming through the main gate about noontime. And there were all these old guys running from Mainside out to the gate. And I thought, you know, I want to be like that when I get old. 
Little did I realize those guys were probably in their low 30s right. at the time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's how I got to OCS in February of, uh, of 1981. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So OCS, I think you served a whole career, so you'll kind of understand what I'm talking about. But when you went through OCS and then I went through OCS later, I, I remember it being pretty hard. And I was an ROTC, so I kind of knew the horror stories. You know, the people would go in their junior summer and come back as their seniors and hear all the horror stories about how hard OCS was. So I was training for it. Did you just walk in cold to OCS and just go, or did you train for it? I mean, the only training that I did was I had to start running, you know, Mm -hmm. despite then 6'3 and whatever I was back then, 180. I'm built to run. I hate to run. Of course, we do a lot of running. So I remember the first time I ran three miles, I thought I met Jesus, went from there type of thing. But yeah, other than the physical train up, not really very much. The uh, OCS was not unlike bartending. Everybody's screaming at you, wants stuff all the time. And you're a little bit older, a little bit more easy to accommodate that sort of stuff. And the physical part was great. I mean, I've always been an athlete. So right. that part was, was good to go. I don't think anybody steps on the grinder at OCS these days, whether you're coming out of ROTC or PLC or OCC, without those recruiters training them up and getting them physically ready to go. I think it's different now for these young men and women who are coming in and want to be officers. I think OCS, I thought OCS was hard. I think it's much harder now than it was when I went through it. I'm guessing just because, you know, standards are always improving and things like that. But uh, that was an interesting time. So you come in and you go to OCS. Now, you're going to have staff NCOs there running OCS for you in the early 80s. They're probably Vietnam vets, right? Some of them were our uh, platoon gunnery sergeant, Van Norton. He was a Vietnam veteran. Our sergeant instructor was not. But uh, our platoon commander was not. But, you know, interesting, we had a bunch of Vietnam vets within the platoon itself. Okay. Which I can't even, you know, some were good, some were not good, some made it, some did not make it. I totally agree with your comment, though, that I think it's much harder, much more selective now. I I was a ground contract guy where they were looking for aviators at the time. You know, I I just got through. Interestingly, before, uh, literally before I shipped, my last bartending job was right across the street from the New Rochelle Inspector Instructor Station. Huh. And the first sergeant of that station got orders to OCS upon promotion to sergeant major. So he was a sergeant major of OCS. Oh, wow. My sergeant instructor down there, he confided in me after graduation that he had been told either figure out if this guy's got what it takes to lead or get rid of him no favorites here. So if I ever thought I had an in, I did not. So you did OCC, right? The 10 week got commissioned. Correct. Okay. So I'm curious, you're 27 years old. You just decide to join the Marine Corps. You go through a 10 week OCC program and boom, now you're a second lieutenant, right? And you basically, you go across the base, you check into TVS. What were some of those early formative lessons learned about leadership that you experienced as a brand new second lieutenant and still pretty fresh, right? Ten, let's just call it two months you've got in the Marine Corps. And now you're, you've got captains and you're, you're learning about leadership at TBS. What were some of those memories that you remember from TBS that were really formative? TBS is 
for my experience, there was somewhat of a blur. I was engaged, had a fiance back up in New York. I had a real good company team. Then Major Frank Hicks was the company commander. Captain A.X. Butler was my platoon commander. Great Marine officers. You know, they always led by example. So that part was fun. Nobody likes the academics. And I don't think I really appreciated all that that gives you and how you really have to internalize that. As an 0302 starting out at the end of TBS, that's what I wanted to do. Get me to the field. That's what we're here for. Physicality, the outside. That part was great. And just because of timing, we did OCC, TBS, and then IOC all within that one year. Right, right. One of the things that I get a lot of feedback on on the podcast is from from the young lieutenants. And understandably, everybody is eager to get sort of a hack. You know, how can I be a better platoon commander? How can I be a better officer? Everybody's looking for the hack. I, they don't exist, but the stories that get shared through this podcast are helpful to them to visualize and think about what they're going to do. I'm wondering if you can talk about, so after IOC, you went in and you checked in at 2-1. And I'm wondering if you can share some of the stories about <laughs> you know, your early second lieutenant days. Like, What was your first platoon sergeant like? If you could go back as Colonel Steve Davis, if you could go back and talk to second lieutenant Steve Davis, what would you say? Like, hey, listen, dude, you know, here are a couple of things I think you should really, really work on and, and change about yourself. We reported myself and uh, one of my partners from IOC who had prior enlisted time got dropped off by bus out at Camp Horno at Camp Pendleton in December of, of 81. And for those that are not familiar with Pendleton, Horno is about in the middle of nowhere. There we are. I reported to a golf company and I realized real fast how much I did not know about how the fleet Marine force worked. I did not know that we deployed. And upon being brought into the battalion, I uh, was told to go over to supply and draw my cold weather gear because you had deployed the Mountain Warfare Training Center for a month. Oh, wow. And I was incredulous. It was like, really? You know? So what are we going to do up there? We're going to teach you how to ski. We're going to teach you how to snowshoe. We're going to teach you how to live outside. Of course, that was 40 miles south of South Lake Tahoe, where I lived for two years. Right. And I was just amazed that you got paid to do this. <laughs> so my second night in the battalion, I ran three summary court marshals which was another interesting welcome aboard part of that. So once again, it starts to resonate that, you know, what you do learn at TBS is really important because you might get thrown into the fray real quick. And then uh, I went down to meet my platoon. My platoon did not have a platoon commander resident. It was the platoon sergeant who was acting in both capacities. He was a really solid Marine, but he was burned out. We had. You know, it was just a subject of the times. And I will say that putting things in context is always really important. So place yourself back in 1981, 1982. Recruiting is tough. You still have remnants from Vietnam. Not necessarily great guys. You got guys that are hanging on. I think our platoons rated about 42 Marines at the time. I was averaging probably 30 on the books and 25 on any given day. So you've got leadership issues right up front. A couple of corporals down there, some of whom were good, 
A lot of guys still doing drugs. They were living in open squad bays. There's a number of challenges out there. So going back, I wish I had had been a little bit more aware of what I was walking into. It wasn't overwhelming. I mean, leadership challenges are leadership challenges. The prevailing philosophy, of course, is everything's a leadership problem. So if you're running 15% of your platoon's UA, it's a leadership problem. And it's a little bit more extensive than that. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I was joking the other day. I, I saw this thing on the internet where um, it was it was a spoof or a meme, as the kids call it. And it was a, it was a joke between uh, a captain going into the battalion XO's office and reporting on what happened over the weekend. And, and he said, you know, my lieutenant got a DUI over the weekend. And he said, you know, well, then that's a direct reflection on you. You're a leader. You didn't give him the proper safety brief. Yeah. You know, you have failed as a leader. If one of your da 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 and then he goes on to say, now, do you have anything else to report? He goes, yes, sir. I also got a DUI over the weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I laugh because like, there's some truth in jest there, but, but it does come back to the, you know, sometimes these things happen and you just, they're outside of your control, but you know, the checking in and going to mountain warfare school, I mean, that's, a significant physical event too. What time of the year was that? Was it dead of winter? January. Yeah. Okay. So you're going up there, but you said something that was really interesting about your platoon sergeant kind of being burned out. And that's an interesting perspective for a new lieutenant because every new lieutenant is dying to get to their platoon, regardless of MOS, right? You're just, you're dying to get out there and do what you've been training to do for a year, sometimes a year and a half, or even four years. If you went to the academy or something like that, you've been training for a long time for that moment. And you check in and you may be checking in where your platoon soldier has been there for two and a half, three years, has gone through a divorce or is some sort of life event or something, and he's or she is burned out. And you don't understand that meshing that's taking place. I'm wondering if if you have a little bit of like some vignettes or some lessons shared there about what that experience was like when you came in and what made you realize that he was burned out. Uh, yeah, there's nothing that you can p- put your finger on, but just the overall, you know, as professional as he was, and he was professional, it was just like, oh, Lord, I've got a new second lieutenant, another mm-hmm. one that I have to train. And I've got plenty of issues inside the platoon. Right. And, and there was always a big focus on you got to get your, your UAs back. I mean, to the point you went out manhunting. And in you know South and East LA, that's a that's an interesting introduction to combat up there <laughs> when you're going and, and grabbing guys and bringing them back. Right back in the day, there you really couldn't process anybody for admin discharge without three summary court martial convictions. Oh wow! I think about that. Now, come March of '83, I think it was, they came in with a different policy, so we could just clean the books. We had just come back from a you could uh UDP to Okinawa and you know we were in admin heaven because we were launching people that needed to go. See, so you head off to Bridgeport, you've got your platoon sergeant, you've got your platoon. Tell me a little bit more about what your company commander was like and your first sergeant. How what sort of formative moments did you have with them? Were they constructive in your leadership development? Were they absent? What was that relationship like and what was it like being a lieutenant in your company? I had a very solid uh, company commander. He retired as Colonel Mark Bruyne. Ran a good ship. The first sergeant was longer in the tooth, and uh, I was not totally enamored with him. We got another one somewhere along the way. The platoon commanders ran the gamut, but they were solid guys. Yeah. And you know, a couple of the older ones, weapons platoon commander, 
was real good. I think the first was the second platoon commander, perhaps, was really good. So they helped you work to those. But the guys that really made the difference in that tour was a company gunnery sergeant, a guy named John Cole, who had spent five one-year tours in the Army in Vietnam. And when they wouldn't let him re-enlist, he got out and went to a Marine recruiter and went back for a six-year. Oh, no kidding. And he was just interesting story, a a fellow with a photographic memory. And so just kind of glommed on to him. It's like, please let me download from you. (laughs) Let me learn everything that you know that you want to teach. And he was very generous about that. And we had a wonderful sergeant major in there, uh, Richard uh, Schuler, who uh, those guys set a bar, which was fantastic. And there's, you know, we talk about it in schools, the leadership of how you tie into your staff NCOs and, and your NCOs and how do you develop that relationship, which is absolutely critical. And if you've got a player for a sergeant major and you've got a player in your platoon sergeant, you're off to a good run and start. And those guys taught me some things about leadership, much more about tactics, techniques, and in the politics that we live in, that they are always another avenue of assistance when it comes to your issues, if you're willing to go that route with them. Right. What about, did you witness or see anything as a lieutenant in your first command where you saw examples of poor leadership and they imprinted on you like, I will never be like that or I will never do that. Some of the great stories I've heard from previous guests have talked about, you know, this was an example of something I really never wanted to be like. Those things always seem to happen in your lieutenant days where you're exposed to all this new leadership styles and you form your own opinions on things. Anything like that? I think that probably the thing that resonates most in me is not so much in the leadership. You saw that good, bad, and ugly wherever you went. You realize, mm-hmm. okay, I see the good guys. I want to emulate some of what they're doing. Uh, I see the bad guys, and I don't want to emulate their doing. And you got to know the difference. You can't go along to get along. That's really important. There was a lot of zero defects down there, and I think a lot of it resonated in the tactics at the time. You got graded on how you would move a platoon in formation through one of the valleys at California. If you attacked up the hill, okay, here we're on line or in a right or left echelon. Did you control them? It's completely unrealistic for war fighting, but yet that's what you're graded on. And everybody knew it was what it was, and it wasn't going to work if we had to fight. You always had the dynamic of, hey, he's a great field Marine, but he's really bad garrison. Yeah. You know, and so how do you take the leadership and apply that understanding what we now call a total Marine concept type of thing? Right. Did you have any of those? (laughs) Yeah, I had lots of them. I mean, they prided themselves and they were very good in the field by and large. One of the best leaders that came out of that platoon was a three time sergeant from the Bronx. And because I'd gone to school in the Bronx, we were able to put together a link. It's like, okay, look, you know, I understand what a leader looks like. You understand what I've got to do. Now, this is how we're going to do it. So I never asked for a whole lot of formal NCOs. You know, I could run a platoon through leaders down there, but you've got to find the right people and you've got to, you know, bring them into your circle of influence. Right. 
What were some of your early on successes as a lieutenant? I've always defined leadership. A leader's job is to create the environment for success to occur. You know, there's treatises from people much smarter and more experienced than me. But I still hold that you as a leader have got to create the environment for success to occur. And I think that once there was a set standard within the platoon, we had an idea of what we were going to try to do, that I'm not out there to get you, but we are out here to work together to what we have to do. I think that that started working fairly positively. You got to remember, this is a people business. People forget that. Maybe they never knew that. But you're dealing with people. There's guys that are going to slip up. There's good guys who are going to go bad. You've got to steer them. That's your job as the steward of the ship, as the leader in that environment. But people are not perfect. And you've got to be able to backstop them. And you've got to be able to teach them. And you've got to be able to correct them right. and hold them accountable. How about some failures as a lieutenant? Anything you can reflect back on and say, Wanda, you're laughing now. Listeners can't see that you're laughing, but (laughs) talk about some of the things you look back on and say like, oh boy, was that a mistake? Well, I'll tell you, probably the one that jumps out the best to me is we we were at at the CACs out at 29 Palms and we had held one of the positions, I think it was up the Delta Corridor and... By the time that evolution had ended, we were back at the base camp, Camp Wilson. And we realized that probably my my company, Gunny, had left a trailer out there. We used to have the old M151s and the trailers. And there's a sure. trailer they left up there. So he came over and said, hey, I've got a problem. He said, I'll go out there with you. You know, let's go pick it up. Completely oblivious of the fact, you know, it's a live fire base and all that sort of thing. So off we went. I was not well prepared for that in terms of navigation aids and having done a map recon and things like that. And long story short, we wound up getting lost out there. We wound up spending the night up the door Delta corridor and areas around there. They had to shut down the whole base because we've got a missing lieutenant and gunnery sergeant out there. <laughs> and and the dawn came up and it was a chilly night, as you can imagine. I think it was March of eighty-two. We found the trailer, you know, and the, the good news is that uh, at the time we did not have good discipline in terms of trash. So there's plenty to eat all spread all, all over the place. And we watched the caravan come up from, you know, the south of about five vehicles. And, yep, we found these guys. So that was probably one of my more glaring uh, failures out yeah. there. You know, it's really funny about when I think back on Lieutenant, you touched on this a little bit earlier when you talked you talked about, you know, one of your first things you did was you ran three court marshals or NJPs. I can't remember which one it was, but summary courts. Yeah, summary courts, right? You go to TBS and you go to your follow-on MOS school, you learn all of the things that you need to be technically proficient. What they don't teach you is all of the little things like the little things that you really have no idea about, those tend to be the stories as a lieutenant that you take away and you say, oh my God, I had no idea. And I think back, I just asked you that question and, and it flashed in my mind that my battalion, my artillery battalion had to go to the field as brand new second lieutenant. My artillery battalion had to go to the field. And I was attaching to the LAR battalion to go to the field and, and they weren't leaving until the next day. And I was responsible for bringing the crypto fills for the radios <laughs> over to the LAR battalion to put them so that we could talk on our conduct of fire net and all those kind of things. And that was back, you remember we had the old KY-57. So the, the crypto gear was separate from the, from the radio. 
And so my exo said, yeah, you need to go down to com and draw the, it was the kick 13. Nobody's going to know what that is except you, but mm-hmm. the thing, and you know, and then you would plug it into the computer and it would. And so I went over, I got it from the com thing and went home and got my stuff together and woke up the next morning and drove over to the LA Arbor Battalion, got in the vehicle and went to the field. And that was it. But you know, you don't lose a kick 13, right? It's got the lanyard no. cord on it. You dummy cord the dummy cord with that thing. It's really, right. You lose that thing. It's worse than losing a rifle. And I get back to the rear and, and the exo said, Hey, by the way, when you drew that kick 13, where did you put it when you went home that night? I go, I, I took it home with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'm so stupid. I have no idea what, you know, what the, what the ramifications of that even are. You know, you just don't learn those things as a lieutenant. So there's always going to be those funny things that happen. But no, you're right. So back to your lieutenant time, and, and we'll move on from that pretty quickly. But one last question about your lieutenant time. Your sergeant major and your battalion commander, they must have been around Vietnam. They must have grown up at least with the Vietnam War, either as participants or, or looming over them. Were they of that age? Oh, yeah. My original battalion commander, R.G. Nunnally, I believe he played pro football at one point for the Houston Oilers back then. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he was the classic Marine. He was a great leader. We loved him. He had been wounded, I think, multiple times in Vietnam. And uh, Sergeant Major Schuler absolutely had Vietnam tours. Those guys were great. They're just, you know, great. And the battalion XO, Jeff Ronald, had been out with the CAP program. They had lots to add. They did not tolerate foolishness, which was great. When you then, and I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, we'll come back, but you went on to be a battalion commander and a regimental commander. Did any of those experiences with your initial battalion commander, your initial sergeant major, being Vietnam vets, did they inform your leadership style at all when you became a battalion commander? Because we all kind of say, like, I'd like to be like him or her or something like that. Yeah, I would say, yes, they absolutely did. Not so much as others, although I'm in contact with Sergeant Major Schuler to this day. Yeah. That was the strength of that link. What I got out of the leadership, you know, more so came from the company Gunny. Not so much leadership-wise, but okay, how does this really work when you're fighting? Because, I mean... At the end of the day, the things that we don't like to talk about is we are in the killing business, you know, and that's not to say there's not other parts to go with that, but that you got to be honest with yourself. You know what I mean? We're not here for the thrill. That's what we do. So if we're going to be here, what works? You know, here's the guidelines. We understand moral, legal, and ethical. We got that part, but how does this work on the ground? And that's really the takeaways from the Vietnam guys. You went on then to, I'm assuming still as a lieutenant, over to recon, correct? Were you a lieutenant then? Or? Yeah, I mean, candidly, I was coming up to the end of my, uh, you know, my three years. Uh, I was brought into the program as a USMCR because you had to augment into the regular Marine Corps at that time. And the engagement had fallen apart. And I was just debating, okay, is it time to punch and go out and go to the next step down the life journey? And I saw uh, an advertisement to go up for selection to 1st Recon Battalion. So I said, that looks like fun. You know, for the last six, eight months of my career, let me go check it out. So I went up, assessed, got selected, and went up there. And they're up at uh, Camp Talega, at the north end of Camp Pendleton at the time. Mm-hmm. Old pioneer camp from World War II. And I was up there with a platoon in Charlie Company for a couple of months and then all of a sudden, got called up, and you got orders to go to 
maintenance management officer school. And I thought my life had ended. Oh, geez. Yeah. So off I went to Del Mar for four weeks. And interesting, wound up uh, being classmates with a company commander from uh, 2-1, who I was friendly with, came back and found myself assigned as the S-4 Alpha at 1st Recon Battalion. And it's not what I was looking to do, but it's like, hey, you know, we take lemons and you make lemonade out of them. Wherever you planted, you bloom. That's, that's how we do business here. And I had every collateral DAT duty from armory and power loft and dive locker and engineer and maintenance and MBAR, yada, yada, yada. And that was it. So we hadn't passed any CG or IG inspections in over a year. Mm -hmm. And so in that time I was at school, the battalion had a change of command. And the new battalion commander was then Lieutenant Colonel Wheeler Baker. And I owe everything to Wheeler Baker because he made the Marine Corps for me what I was looking for. We haven't talked about, you know, why do people come into the Marine Corps? You know, I've written that into philosophy of commands many a time that, uh, you know, some people seek a challenge. Some know that they need or that they want discipline. Others want to fight or at least learn how to fight. And they all want to be part of this Marine Corps tribe. We want that identity. And what this organization gives us is an opportunity for every man and woman to look into their heart, to find out what type of person they really are. You know what I mean? And that's important. And that's what then Lieutenant Colonel, he retired as a Colonel, Colonel Baker did. The Baker was a legend. He was a force recon guy enlisted in Vietnam for multiple tours, went back as an infantry company commander. Everywhere he did, he just exuded leadership. He had a successful recruiting tour in the 60s, late 60s, in San Francisco. You think about that, and that tell you what type of leader he was. Ultimately, he made me his S-4 for a year, and then later on a company commander. That was the reward for squaring away those accounts. So what does that have to do with leadership? You know, that's the impact of leadership coming from the battalion level. He created the environment for success to occur. His sergeant major was a guy named Lloyd Daniels, who as a force recon Marine had been part of Mac V SOG in Vietnam. And Daniels, I mean, I would have followed Daniels anywhere. He was a magnificent leader. And everybody in that battalion was locked on to the program that they were putting out. It was a phenomenal place to work. And it was unthinkable, frankly, not to stay in the Marine Corps. I applied for augmentation, got a one-year swag, my first attempt, and I got picked up on my second, my second attempt through. But you take the leadership you're seeing. That's, that was my instructive tour, if you will. I might have been a staff officer for a year plus, but you take leadership and start applying it there because those Marines need it too, probably more so. You know, where 2-1, the game was, hey, how do you take a platoon and fix it to make it right? You get out into the reconnaissance world, you've got the opposite problem. You've got overachievers, and how do you keep them in bounds so they don't run out? That's a really interesting compare and contrast because we spent some time talking about your time in 2-1, and, and what you just said was, you know, your time at 2-1, you made a couple examples of how you were graded about where you in an echelon right or whatever when you were attacking up the hill. And that was a focus on those, you know, measurable things. And then I just heard you say that 
being at Recon was more about how do you manage these overachievers, which is a completely different skill set. And that, you know, Wheeler Baker was setting setting the conditions for the success and setting the culture of that company. And that inspired you to excel. Can you give a couple more examples of what Colonel Baker did back then that was really impactful and informative, not only to you, but to other people that you were serving with? There's dozens of examples for him. Battalion PT, every Friday morning, who was leading it? Colonel Baker, Sergeant Major Daniels. And you'd go until they got tired. And, you know, so how's this old guy doing this? Uh, so if I'm hurting, yeah, there it is. It's just easy physical examples. Colonel Baker always, you know, he rewarded performance, but he never gave up on anybody, even if they slipped or even if they hadn't made the mark. You know, he was the ultimate teacher, educator. He would take me under his wing. He knew I wasn't thrilled being an S4 as a lieutenant. But, you know, I learned about the reconnaissance business through him, what an officer does in reconnaissance. How do you plan? How do you run ops? Things like that. And he got me to all the schools, you know, that everybody else, you know, the operational guys were getting to. So I was never a step behind. And then due to the circumstance of my augmentation, he uh, managed to get myself and three other officers PCS orders over to 3rd Reconnaissance Battalion because they had no officers over there, which which is the follow-on to that tour. Right. Just examples like that, taking care of how you really take care of your people. And if it wasn't for his endorsement, I never would have gotten augmented. Yeah, it's interesting. A previous episode with uh, Colonel Reggie McClam, he's the commanding officer of the basic school right now. And we talked about how sometimes young officers and enlisted probably too look at it and they say like, oh, this is a shitty billet. This billet isn't what's going to get me promoted. You get some, some of that thinking. And you just reinforce something that he said. I'll, I'll say it to you so for some context to keep talking about it. But basically what Colonel McClam said was, it is all about the performance, your performance in the billet that you're in more so than it is about the actual billet that you're in. Because every leader at some point in their career, if they have a career of, of any duration, are going to end up doing something that they didn't aspire to do. In your case, you, you never wanted to be the S4 alpha. But your performance there was so important that not only did you learn things about being an officer in the reconnaissance community, it set you up to be basically endorsed by Colonel Baker to then go on and be at 3rd Recon Battalion, if I heard you correctly. That is correct. Yeah. I mean, the reward for doing well as the S4 Alpha is they fired the four and made me the four. Well, that's that's an endorsement. Yeah. I bought another, another year there. No, I appreciate Colonel Clown's uh, comments, and I think he's probably smarter than I am. What drove me, again, what was I looking for out of the Marine Corps? I wanted to contribute, I wanted to learn, and I wanted to operate. Those three things, plain and simple. That's what I personally wanted. So, okay, you're giving me this job that I don't particularly aspire to. I'd much rather be a platoon commander, but that's what it is. So I'm going to give you the best performance I've got. And I'm going to take what I can and make the guys that are working with me and for me the best experience that they've got. Now, the real payback, which I did not have the maturity or and the knowledge to understand is... I learned all about logistics. And we get to war fighting. When we talk about 
my CO is 3.8 or a second Marine's RCT2. You know, if you don't understand logistics, you don't understand how we play this game. Right. So all those things, I mean, there's nothing that terrorizes certain staffs more than a commander coming in and asking for an LM2 report and the daily uh, process report. And they're like, oh, my God, how does this guy even know what these are? Right. And let me talk about maintenance with you. And that's when you can get whole other parts. But you don't know that as a young guy. No. And maybe you hear those terms at TBS or your follow-on school and you get a 30-minute block of instruction on the DPR or, you know, arrows, aerosols, any of those kind of things. And you get exposure to it. But then all of a sudden, you're expected to do it. And and something that you said that it's it's worth uncovering a little bit is, you know, as officers, we all hear about how we're supposed to lead, right? We know that. We know whether you're an officer, an NCO, whatever, staff NCO, inherent in those billets and the responsibility that's bestowed upon those leaders is leading. But then there's also managing that has to happen too. And we don't, we don't talk about managing in the same context that we talk about leadership, right? Because you don't manage somebody to attack the hill. You lead them. But you've got to manage things too as an officer. And that's one of your roles as a young leader and officer is you also have to manage things. And you were just talking about the daily processing report and the LM2 report and things like that. You've got to learn how to manage the things in your unit as much as you learn to lead the people in your unit. That's a great comment. I'm just chuckling as you're saying it because I came to realize later on through all the billets I had that... You know, you realize at some point, if you haven't thought about it, and you have to think about it, the more senior you get is, you know, like we always talk about, well, we're going to go win this fight. Well, yeah, you can win fights. But I've ran into that in Iraq in 2005. People, reporters are always, are we winning? It's like, this is something that you must define. Mm-hmm. You know, we are, it's the same, same sort of thing. There are problems out there that do not have solutions. Okay, we are not, this is not American football. We're not going black and white. We got rules, set time, set playing field. You know, this is open form. This is life. There are these problems that require managing. And you're not going to bring them to the happy conclusion. So it gets back to the same point. You know, I didn't try to define or, you know, adopt a leadership style. I tried to bring in the leadership principles and traits and make them mine. This is how I apply them. This is what this means to me. And you need to spell that out as a commander. And you need to spell it out as a staff officer to the guys working for you so they know where you're coming from. Right. So you then became a commanding officer at 3rd Recon Battalion. You were a captain. So your friends were probably off doing B-billets and you're still living the life in the reconnaissance <laughs> community, correct? That is absolutely correct. Yeah, right. <laughs> we talked a little bit offline about it. I had a similar experience when I went to Anglico. The same thing. My friends were off doing recruiting and stuff. And I was still out deploying and going to the field and having a great time. So I share in how special that is to still be out there operating as a, as a captain. But what were some of the lessons that you learned through your company command time? Well, I'll tell you, at 3rd at third Recon Battalion, they are always in the interesting position of Marines on a one-year tour. Mm-hmm. So ostensibly, how do they retain some knowledge there, at least at, at, during that period of time, which was uh, 85, early 86, is you know they would offer a reenlistment. You stay for another year, we'll give you two weeks basic leave and a round-trip ticket to the States. So normally, a Marine go back home for two weeks, 
come back and go right to the Philippines for the following two weeks. And then they'd come back to the, uh, the company, Bravo Company in my case. And I was lucky because when I got there, uh, I came in and I was still a lieutenant and thus a platoon commander working for then Captain Bob Wagner, who unfortunately has passed since then, who was a gifted leader uh, prior enlisted in Vietnam. The battalion commander, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Al Ewens, was a close friend with Colonel Baker. Okay. So, you know, that handoff was great. And the leadership was just the same. It was phenomenal. When Colonel Gewins changed command, uh, we weren't quite as lucky. I had gotten promoted and thus to become the company commander, succeeding Bob Wagner. But again, the challenge there at Great Marines, I mean, they didn't really have garrison issues because, you know, we weren't in CONUS, so say. We deployed with 9th Marines and 35 Mal for about six, eight months to Korea through the bear hunt operations, working for some great folks over there that knew how to operationally employ it. The training was great. I mean, it was just, it's a fabulous tour. But leadership wise, my greatest challenge probably was when I had to trade out first sergeants. Oh, okay. And I got a wonderful first sergeant from the drill field named Jerry Bouchard. And Bouchard, as I came to find out later when I went to the drill field, he's a little bit of a legend down there. We had the probably the hardest thing, certainly one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my career, was to sit him down and have a heart-to-heart talk with him. You might call it a counseling. I just prefer to call it a heart-to-heart. Mm-hmm. And had to explain to him that, you know, First Sergeant, you are not on the drill field anymore. And spit-shine boots and starch camis are not real important out in this world here. Okay, this is what's important out in this world here. And I need you to sit down and tell me if you're good with that, you know, so we can march. And credit him. He took it to heart. And you could just see the difference in the company between somebody that was trying to impose drill field regulation on a reconnaissance unit in Okinawa. And then not becoming one of the boys, but modifying his style and bringing all the power that he brought. And you talk about one of the most beloved first sergeants you ever saw with his troops. For the younger audience out there, what Steve and I are talking about right now is in the old days, we had black boots that we had to shine with shoe polish <laughs> and Q-tips and cotton balls and... <laughs> everything else. They don't know how good they have it these days though. They do not. The shining boots was sort of a, it was an immediate way to judge the perceived, and I'm using my air quotes here, the perceived professionalism of somebody in an instant by looking at their physical appearance. And this is back also when we used to starch the shit out of our camis. They were like cardboard when you got them from the dry cleaners. That was also a sign of perceived professionalism. And I think that as I hear some of the people and I look at some of the joking on the internet, this generation just has a different way that they look at how can you tell if somebody's professional? Do they have their hands in their pockets? Are they rolling their sleeves up shitty? Are their boots bloused low? Things like that. So there's still those there's still those issues of perceived visual the visual alert to somebody's level of professionalism. And and there's a joke about it. And but I do think there's this constant struggle between how do you maintain some of those basic issues of discipline, but not make them the most important thing in the world? And I come back to this issue of leadership in the Marine Corps is very difficult. 
is we tend to focus on the things that we can measure Ah. And and us going out there and killing people and destroying their shit is really hard to measure in a training environment. It's really hard to measure whether or not an attack would have really worked or a tactical decision would have really worked. But you know what you can measure? How many DUIs did your platoon get last week? <laughs> what does a uniform inspection look like? Are people walking around with their hands in their pockets? Are people walking around without skivvy shirts on? wearing boonie covers, things like that. And and I think that we kind of default to this, well, if I can measure it, that's what I'm gonna that's what people are gonna measure me on. I'm gonna focus on those things. How did you maintain that equilibrium with the first sergeant who wanted everybody to be spit shine boots, but the the realities of being in a recon unit where maybe those things, while they could be measured, weren't indicators of true performance and ability. Yeah, I, what a what a fantastic comment! I wish I'd made it. <laughs> I probably stole it from somebody. I'm not that smart. Yeah, it's right on the money. And again, it goes back to my comment earlier about things have to be put in context. In this case, in context of the time in which we were living, and what we're doing, I, I'm looking at something I had jotted down and said, so, you know, the institutions are always in search for quantitative methods to justify their plans, their standards. Their images. They're trying to make it simple so they can grade you. Because if you really want to know, you know what I mean. It's not just a casual look. Yep, starch camis, high and tight, spit shine boots. He's got to be, and he runs, and he runs at three hundred pft. He's got to be a great marine, right? Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. It's much deeper than that. And we just, you know, institutionally, we're not there. That's why guys from the conventional, from the infantry side of house, used to flee to recon. You know, why? Because we could train how we were really going to do things. You could get ahead. You could go to schools. You could learn more. You could do more. You could get out instead of just going left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. And this comes back later on. We can talk about that when I went as director of the DI school. You know, there's there's a standard image of what that is. This is students coming in. What does a drill instructor look like? Well, of course, they flash right back to their senior drill instructor. This is it. This is how I'm supposed to be. And that's how we replicate bad habits institutionally. We can talk about that later. Uh, let's talk about it now. Okay. Yeah. Again, you talked about General Klimt before. Mm -hmm. He was CG, uh, took over from General Deegan down at Paris Island. I had come off of... Uh, my tour with Golf 2-4, which we, I hope we get back to because there's a lot in there. Sure. That Paris Island for, for two years as the uh, operations officer for the weapons training battalion, running all the ranges down there. Six gifted CWO range officers worked for me running those ranges. The guys were great. The battalion commander, Harry Jensen, was just an absolute gentleman. Great leader. He was a great leader. He just told you what he wanted you to do. Kept his hands off. If you needed course correction, he'd tap you one way or the other. Great two years. General Klemp took over command of the depot, and they wanted somebody from outside the recruit training regiment to go over and do some changes at the DI school. Mm -hmm. So among the majors on the depot, I got selected to go there, which raised quite a bit of fuss because I'd never served and never have served in the recruit training regiment. But I'm not in the business of training recruits. I am in the business of training drill instructors. And you get back to the how do you hold your racehorses in check? Great first sergeant, chief instructors there. 
seven to eight hand-picked gunnery sergeants, every one of them was a long ball hitter, just fabulous leaders. They just need to know what you want. And so you go to the drill instructor school. It's no problem. You don't have a problem with your instructors. They are the top professionals in the business. And for me, it was a great learning time from all of them. But the students coming in are great Marines selected from across the Corps for their special duty assignment. And they come in with an image of what the drill instructor is supposed to be. And they immediately flash right back to their recruit training. And much was the case when I took over as the director is that we were putting sergeants and staff sergeants primarily back through recruit training again, treating them like they know how to be recruits. They're Marines. Right. And these are great NCOs and staff NCOs. So how do we change things, the curriculum, how we do business to empower them, to enfranchise them, to take all their talent and their leadership and make them educators, make them, you know, let them be the leaders that they are. We teach them the, the training SOP. And we revamped with the, uh, the school out in San Diego, Paris Island's a lead. We wrote the entire curriculum while putting through four classes a year. Wow. Interestingly, out of that, you know, you talk, the leadership is not your traditional problem. As I said, the problem is generally, how do you keep ahead of people that are world-class performers? You know, how do you take them down there? But we were able to do some analysis that you take a hard look at the, the SOP, the rules right. you got to play by, and the training schedule. And we were able to identify about 13 places where if you followed the SOP, you could not complete the training schedule. And if you completed the training schedule, you had to violate the SOP. So institutionally, you're putting that drill instructor between a rock and hard place. Right. And so I think my reporting, see the guy I actually reported to was the G3 of the depot. And so a little major goes on up there, say, hey, sir, your program's all screwed up. <laughs> and here's where it's screwed up. Okay, so we got to have a decision to resolve this. Otherwise, it's not fair to this drill instructor out on the street. Just a reminder to maybe pause real quick and head over to Apple or Spotify and rate and review this podcast. Really helps when I get those. And if you're interested in supporting the project, check out the show notes for my link to the Supercast site and check out the different subscription levels there. Thanks. We haven't touched on it yet, but you spent some time as an inspector instructor in the 4th Recon Battalion in the Marine Corps Reserves. And what you just talked about in terms of the SOP for the drill instructors, you know this, it exists in the reserves too. There is 25 pounds of stuff that you've got to pack into a five-pound bag. And at some point, the commanding officer of the unit and the INI look together and say, what are we not doing? What, what are we going to consciously not do? And when you make that decision, you're violating some order or policy or procedure somewhere. Yep. And I'm not going to say I pencil whipped anything. But I certainly didn't do everything I was supposed to, probably to standard. You know, if there was a training, and so these things exist all over the Marine Corps. It's 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 hard. I'm glad to see that you you were part of tackling that problem at one level of the institution. I'm probably going to edit all that out, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the point is valid. I think Brigadier General Nixon, in your interview with him, was talking about how do you take. NCOs, staff NCOs who are downrange have been given tremendous latitude to make decisions, life and death decisions. 
and then you bring them back into a peacetime environment and stifle any initiative, any creativity, because everybody's got to cover down on this, that. And again, 25 pounds into a five pound bag. Yeah. If you could do that, it would be a 25 pound bag. Right. Well, that's a great point. And that's an interesting point that you make about the NCOs. And I, I do think that one of the challenges that young officers are going to have to very quickly come to terms with in a way that your generation and my generation never, ever were forced to really adopt, which was delegating and using commander's intent. Because if we do end up executing anything close to what the commandant wants to do with Force Design 2030, you're going to have Marines all over the island chains and they're probably get the senior guy on the spot is probably going to be a sergeant and that sergeant may be launching a, an anti-ship missile at something so if you're going to give ncos that much latitude in combat but then tell them that their liberty is secured at 9 30 every night on okinawa yeah, yeah. well I, I you know like i don't know how we're ever going to recruit retain or even keep trained to standard these young leaders who are going to be put in those decisions. And that's a challenge that officers are going to have to deal with and NCOs. Yeah, to follow on to that. And that's where the senior, more senior and senior officers need to play their role. Mm -hmm. And they have got to take a hard look at the institution and they have got to decide and adjust on those things that put the people in those positions. You know, your, your point is spot on. And, you know, that is, again, why people go over to the special operations world, to the reconnaissance world, where we entrust them to make decisions. If you train them right, you got to trust them. Right. Sometimes that will backfire on you. Mm -hmm. You're not going to hit a, you know, they put you in the Hall of Fame for what, batting 350? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, you're not going to hit a thousand percent, hundred percent all the time. No. You're just not. And we've got to be comfortable in letting people fail too. That's right. But it's got to be more than mouthing those words. Right. You know, we, we got to put them. And what that does, as you know, is that for those that are career oriented, if you will, you know, what I mean, oh, how is that going to reflect on me? That back? Oh, you know, it's a leadership problem. Well, it may or may not be, but the odds are it's probably not. It's probably a people problem. And you've, the institution's got to be able to adjust to that. I think if you look it down, some of the things they do in the soft world, there are examples of ways forward. They've got the problems out there. They just deal with them better. Yeah, that's true. And I do understand that you're, you have to manage an organization to the lowest common denominator. And there's, let's just call it 180,000 people in the to total Marine Corps. And there's a very, very small amount of people in the recon community. So you're, you're, kinda, you're able to really assess down and neck down to the best of the best. And maybe you're, you're, you don't have to your lowest common denominator in the soft community is way different than your lowest common denominator in the entire Marine Corps or even the big army, right? And that's very true. But why is that? You know, it's because of the assessment and selection. Yeah, exactly. And what you're trying to do. And although I spend a lot of time and interest in the Force Design 2030 program on both sides of that, because there are two sides to this. Yeah, there are. I think that that's some of what General Berger's trying to get to with this a bakerism, if you will, you know, don't spend 90% of your time on your 10% that are not cutting it. You spend 90% on your 90%. You know, I, I came to out of my I and I tour, uh, I became a man who collects quotes and sayings, and I export them to my, my uh, subordinates 
several of whom you know and we'll talk about shortly when we get to Golf 2-4. But, you know, the first one is the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Right. And while it sounds, okay, that's really cute. Think about that. We don't keep the main thing the main thing. And that's what leaders have got to do. You can't get distracted by all the chaff out there in the world. You know, your job is to keep the main thing the main thing. Right. And so you can do that. And what's interesting is, you know, well, just by virtue of the platform, I'm talking to a lot of very senior and accomplished mm-hmm. officers, whether retired or on active duty. And to a man or woman, well, hopefully more women soon, but so far to a man, they have all said, I want to have a Marine Corps where we're taking more risk. And I want to have a Marine Corps where we're creating these great decision makers and all these thinkers. And then I'm like, okay, well then what, what the f- is happening? <laughs> you yeah. know? And, and here's my theory on it. You have a retirement system in the Marine Corps that is based on making 20 years to get to your retirement. And if you get booted out at the 12-year mark or the 15-year mark, you are starting over from zero with a – because. and if we change the Marine Corps to a 401k plan, and whenever you get out, you take whatever you put into your 401k plan, we probably see a lot more people getting booted out because you wouldn't feel bad about ruining somebody's career or, or people would be comfortable getting out as majors. So but what happens is you have this retirement system that is based on – like at the 10-year mark, you have just swam halfway across the ocean – and you know you got to get to the other side. So you're pushing through. Now you're going to neck down all the risk. I am not going to do anything to risk getting to 20. And I think that's where a lot of this stifling leadership comes from. Dave Armstrong's theory. I, I could be totally wrong. But that's I think just- you're exactly right. And uh, in your outline, you mentioned that. You know why are why do we have the numbers of officers turning down command? That's what we always aspire to is to command. Mm-hmm. It's because you have one hiccup, you get relieved. You know, and everybody says, well, you know, it's political correctness and all the other jargon they use for it. You know, that's the institution not stand up and say, hey, okay, we wish the guy hadn't used that verbiage or done that. But, you know, we say we have zero defect mentality. It's totally zero defect in that. Right. And that's why guys are shying away from it. I got 15 years in. Am I going to be a battalion commander? Risky job. You know, boom. No, I'm not yeah. going to take it. Sure, because they could probably still get promoted to lieutenant colonel and retire at 20 and never take command. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Tell me, you've, you've brought up Golf 2-4 a couple times. <laughs> you were a company commander at Golf 2-4. I'm assuming before Desert Storm, you were, the, you were the commanding officer, correct? I got there just before Desert Storm. Let me back up one, because I had uh, a year at AWS. Oh, okay. Between the I and I duty and and two four, and, and what I wanted to just talk about is again the impact of mentors. Where I owe everything to uh, Colonel Wheeler Baker, you know, who made the Marine Corps for me what I was looking for. The guy that took whatever uh, abilities I have and shaped it uh, was Major General Paul Lefevre, who was my den daddy at AWS, the old amphibious warfare school. And that school, you talk about a finishing school of teaching you how to think, not what to think. Mm-hmm. To me, there's no smarter guy in the game than General Lefebvre, period. He is the thousand pound head. He continues now in his retired life to work with the Marine Littoral Regiments, with the, the experiments going on. He works in a joint arena. But that guy, you know, takes you to the doctoral level. And I worked for him the summer after school because I got a knee repaired. 
and then uh, got down to two golf two four just as they were coming back from uh, Operation Sharp Edge. I had gotten down there, I think about four or five days before they actually got back. So I had a little bit of time to get my feet on the ground. And Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Connery was coming in to be the new battalion commander. He had commanded Second Force Reconnaissance Company. So I knew about him, and he's another close friend of, the, you know, by now Colonel Baker. So Baker had called him, said, hey, you're getting Davis. You make him your boat company commander, essentially. He's got a good background in that, and that's what he can do. And being that they were attached to 8th Marines at the time, you're trying to get in that MUSOC rotation. Desert Shield breaks off, and then Desert Storm, obviously. And so we had to turn around and gear up for that. And I was supposed to get a, uh, a seasoned lieutenant from one of the companies uh, as my XO. And a golf company did not have a real good tour during their deployment. I'm just going to leave that alone. So there was some work to do there. But I was walking around the battalion area as a battalion dribbled back in. And I went down to the golf company area and started talking with some of the lieutenants. And one of the lieutenants was a young man by the name of Bill Journey, who is now Lieutenant Colonel Bill Journey, and he is the Commanding General of Marine Forces Pacific. And after about a two-hour talk with them and the fellow I was supposed to get as an XO, I just figured out, well, if I'm going to do something here, I'm going to go back to the battalion commander and recommend a personnel switch. And Journey was supposed to go over and take the 81's platoon, which you know is a prestigious billet for a lieutenant to have, but I fought a three-day battle with the uh, outgoing battalion CO for possession of Journey and ultimately said, if you want me to fix this company the way you want it to be for your incoming successor, I need Bill Journey to be my XO. And on the third day, I think he was just tired of me being a pain in the ass. <laughs> and uh, he says, okay, you can have Journey, but you're not getting anybody else. To which, of course, the New York Big Mouse says, thanks, sir. That's all I need. Okay. And that was the start of a, a wonderful relationship, <laughs> at least from my part. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, But you did have other lieutenants. Well, we got other lieutenants. You know, there's a couple of shuffle from a couple that we took to the desert uh, one day. And I was running low on, on uh, you know, the, the lieutenants, but because we ultimately became the last infantry battalion out of Lejeune going to the desert. Oh, really? Colonel Connery had taken command. And I got called up to the office one day and said, you're getting two new lieutenants, which was like, okay. You know, but you don't usually call a company commander up there to tell them they're getting lieutenants. What's up? He says, well, one's name is Christmas, Jimmy Christmas. And that was easy to track because his dad was, you know, right. a three-star at the time and an absolute legend and hero in the Marine Corps. And the other one's name is uh, Mike Chambers. And it's like, okay, what gives? Well, his dad's a lieutenant colonel over at Division. Got it. And his grandfather was a living recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor at Iwo Jima. It's like, oh, okay, very nice. Wow. But I'll tell you what, you talk about two high-powered lieutenants that came in that were just magnificent. So with that gang, off we went to uh, Desert Shield. Yeah. Interestingly, you were talking about a leadership issue. You know, you fight the powers that be when you got to fight the powers that be. And if you're lucky, you get to win, which was for me quite a win getting Journey down there. But 
Before we got any of the other lieutenants, we wound up doing a force-on-force -force exercise to get 1-8 ready to go. And so Journey actually had regimental duty that night. So I was the only officer in the field. And again, probably in the October timeframe, I'm guessing back in, the, it was one of those classic days where it started raining late in the day, the temperature dropped to the low 40s, and it just kept raining. And we uh, started running into a bunch of hypothermia problems across the board. They had to suspend the exercise. And it's like, okay, guys, this is how we play the game. Doc, get everybody up. Uh, had some good staff, NCOs. Just get everybody up, get a head count, and get them moving. Okay? I don't care if we walk around in circles. Don't let them wander. Mm -hmm. Just keep them moving. And, uh, you know, if we need to hold PT, we will keep people's mind off of what they're doing. But it came to one of the Marines was clearly turning into a medical issue, and we need to get them back to battalion to a warming tent. So go over to the Jeep, open up the passenger door, and out falls the company gunnery sergeant. It's like, Gunny, you know, what are you doing? You know, we got a guy here, we got so-and-so, he's got to get medevac. We got to take him down to, uh, down to the battalion, get him warmed up. He looks up and he says, well, I'm cold too, sir. And it was like, okay, you know, here's a guy that excelled in three different special duties. And that's the answer that you get. And that just becomes, okay, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough have to get going. And, you know, sometimes you find out these lessons in surprise places. I've heard numerous stories over this podcast about the the gunny that just falls apart or the lieutenant or captain that just falls apart in in certain situations and and that is certainly a leadership challenge but that that was walking into combat right I mean you're you're discovering these these things getting ready to go It was again we deployed ultimately in the December to uh Saudi Arabia ironically uh you know we got aboard camp 15 and then we deployed up to an area called the Rock Quarry, because that's what it was. Mm -hmm. And it rained there, I think, ironically, for about four days straight. More rain during that period of time than I think they had in the recorded history of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And so, of course, after having gone through the exercise against 1-8, everybody has this great sense of dark humor. It's like, how'd you arrange that training event? so we could be ready for this over here. Right. Ultimately, I wound up flip-flopping that company gunny and sent him down to the weapons platoon, took the weapons platoon sergeant, brought him up to be the company gunny. Because when it came to that, that's just what the situation required. What were some of your biggest leadership challenges or mo moments in leadership being a infantry company commander getting ready to go over the berm in Desert Shield, Desert Storm? And were you part of the second Marines that kind of went right through the berm out of Kuwait? Uh, we did not do the original breach. We went through on the evening of day one, but there was a, they were stalled. The movement north was stalled. We had to go back through the breach into Saudi Arabia and came through the following morning when things had unjammed. Okay. And then, uh, you know, wound up taking the lead attack in zone for day two and, and the night of day two, which was an adventure. You know, we wound up getting tracks, not from 2nd AAVs, but from the reserve. I'm sorry, we had trackers from 2nd AAV, but the tracks themselves came out of the reserves and they had been stripped out. There were no compasses. There were no, you know, GPSs. I think there were two in the battalion type of thing. 
Right. So come night with the smoke on the battlefield, confusion, the fog, the friction, that presented some great challenges out there. Did you ever have any you know, moments you're, you're a company commander? I mean, up, up until that point, you're, you're, you're training as an infantryman, you're trained as a reconnaissance man, and you're trained as an infantryman, and you're going to ranges and you're shooting. And now you're just, you're in it. And you're what, mid 30s at that point, 35, I'm guessing? Maybe? Probably later so, than that. Yeah. Yeah. And here you are, you're, you're in it. Any moments from that where you just, I know this is kind of a hard question to answer, but do you recall? being scared? What were some of your emotions as a company commander? So many things on your shoulders as a leader, right? Like people just don't realize it, but you've got 175 guys you're in charge of. You don't want any of them to get hurt. You're wondering if you're going to perform. It's all new. It's hard to experience it. You're, You're literally doing something you've never done before. What were some of those emotions and how did you control them or manage them? And can you answer that in the context of advice to a junior leader? I think the company numbered somewhere between 225 and 230 with the the attachments that we had, and we had been plussed up pretty well. I think the most sobering moment, because again, we didn't have the big buildup during Desert Shield. We got there towards the mid end of December, and Mm -hmm. you know, war kicked off. I think about six weeks, five six weeks later, and we had lived. You know, after we left the rock quarry, we kept moving around the desert, just holding positions on the MEF's right flank. And living out, you know, just camping in the desert type of thing is one thing. But I remember going up and watching, looking at a sit rep and, the, and the, the, the ops map in the division tent. And they had this habit of when they would identify enemy artillery batteries, units on the map. So what does artillery do? You know, you displace every three, four days. Otherwise, you could get pounded. Mm-hmm. And what they didn't do is ever take off the original marking on the map. So after about four or five weeks, you've got this whole mass of red on the map. Okay. And I'm looking at that thinking, you know, this could be a long day. There'll be a long day when we go across here. I I cannot honestly ever say that was particularly worried about what was going to happen to me personally. It's all about, you know, what is going to happen to my Marines and my corpsmen and what can I do to employ them the best I can? What, what, what tricks do I have in my kit bag that other guys don't know, you know, that I got from the guys, the Vietnam guys, from the studying that we've done, the training we've done? What can we throw into this to uh, give them the best chance to accomplish their mission and walk away from this thing? Right. Another hard question to answer, I, I understand, but if you can answer it, I think it's really constructive. Any examples of, and no names, of course, any examples of bad leadership? Any examples where you saw where you said, oh, God, that was just bad? Off the top of my head, nothing that's that overt that I could say the night of day two, we were heading into regimental objective alpha and you couldn't see anything. I wasn't real thrilled with the uh, attack plan, but you know, people got lost out there. Some of the, the folks excelled. We started taking fire from the flank. Uh, which was that uh, is a built-up area where the oil workers used to live, the uh, ice cube tray, I think it was. So we knew we were going out of our zone, and we cut, you know, perpendicular across probably one eight, might have been somebody else, and just fired up the place, knocked out that threat. Some guys adjusted well. There are certain people that 
I think we're looking for the career move. Mm. And that's, you know, just leave it at that. But uh, at the end of the day, we got things sorted out and, you know, moving. We were very lucky in Desert Storm. The Air Force and Marine Air did a hell of a job because we would not be having this conversation had they not. They were somewhere on day three where we're advancing north. I'm in a lead track in a basically V formation. And there's just carnage all over the battlefield. You know, tanks blowing turrets, going off like Roman candles, prisoners streaming back. So you had to be careful not to take them out because they were essentially unarmed at that point. But we came upon something that just stopped everybody. It's about 100 yards out. It was a whole tank battalion, Iraqi tank battalion, dug in and whole defilade. And because the Air Force had come over and terrorized everybody, everybody had abandoned the tanks. Okay. Had they not done that, I'm going to say, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So it gets to some of the questions about where do you place yourself in the fight? You know, sometimes you're going to be in the lead. You've got to be in the lead for a whole bunch of reasons. But that does not come without, you know, price or potential price. Yeah, I've asked this question on a couple other podcasts, but there's an article that I read recently in Navy Proceedings that was written by a Marine captain. His name's Michael Hansen. He's written a lot of stuff. I, I think he's probably a pretty smart guy, but he wrote this article that really resonated with me. It was called Lead from the Front, Question Mark, Not Always. Mm -hmm. And it was in the November issue, the November 22 issue of Proceedings. And I'll put a link to the show notes to that article, but I'll paraphrase the comment the paragraph they wrote, but basically it was like, hey, all leaders are institutionally programmed to lead from the front, but is that always the best place for a leader to be? Should the leader be walking point on patrol? Should they be the person who kicks in the front door? Should the leader be the first member of his unit to go over the top or cross the wide danger area? These are some of the points he was making. And his thing was many young leaders would emphatically say yes, but experience tells him and us that maybe that answer should emphatically be no. Was there a time when when you experienced that in, in, in your career, either up to the point that we are in your career now or even in the future, you know, down the road in your career? Was there a time when that, when that dawned on you? Because I think there's a huge takeaway there for, for young leaders to understand that your job may not always be to lead from the front. It gets back to that comment I was making about leading and managing because you're managing <laughs> assets. No, it's a great issue. And, and, and the article is excellent. I would give you the answer we get. We give a lot in the soft community, which it depends. Sure. There is no right answer. The thing that I would offer, and there are going to be times when you must be out front and it's going to be dangerous and you run a great chance of, of getting hurt or killed. And that's just the business we're in. I've got a very naive belief that everybody's got their time. And when my time comes, my number's going to get pulled then I'm going to go. I'm not going to be cavalier about that, but any of the, the fights that we've been in, that I've been in, you know, you, you can't worry about that. You just can't. Now, the other part, the other the retort to that article is like, there are those people that take counsel of their fears and position themselves on the battlefield so they can better command and control which is bullshit because they don't have the balls to get down where they need to go. And I ran into that with some of my subordinates later on in Iraq, my opinion. Yeah. So, yeah, there's an argument both ways. If it works for you wherever you're at, that's great. Your men will know. Your men will know. There was 
during Steel Curtain as a regimental commander. I never traveled without my sergeant major, my terp, and my air officer. But in this case, we're fighting. The fighting was going through the uh, town of Huseba that uh, Major General Alfred's talked to extensively and can talk to more. And uh, Sergeant Major and I are just moving around, going and seeing the troops. And we, we dashed across the street some point, went through the, the doors, the metal doors they have into this courtyard. And there was a reinforced squad of Marines there come barreling across. And one of the last corporals looks at me, he goes, sir. What are you doing here? And the answer is, I came to see you. And they were just like, you could see all these smiles break out. And then all the little crazies are off in the attack. You know, you got to place yourself where you got to be when you got to be there is the best answer for that. And sometimes you may have to take yourself out of that lead, but you need to do it for the right reasons. Right. I think that's just part of growth of a leader. That's one of the things that you need to figure out as a leader. It's why I get paid to be a leader is where you're supposed to be and why you're supposed to be there. And you're talking about, you know, some of the decisions and when we were talking about desert shield, desert storm, I mean, the tipping point between making a bad decision and winning the medal of honor is razor thin. <laughs> I mean, you know, people may not know what I'm referencing. I think you will, but like Eddie Ray makes a decision one way or the other with his LAR company. And that's the difference between, you know, letting a tank unit come through and destroy other people and, and getting the Navy cross. Yep. Those decisions are so split second and razor thin. You can't make them, like you said, you can't make decisions to set up your career or get a medal. That's the absolute wrong way to make a decision. And, and I think people get sucked into that sometimes. You should not be in this business if you're interested in getting medals. But I will tell you, Eddie Ray is one great Marine and great yeah. American. People routinely would underestimate him. There is a lot to that man. I know. And his character, one of my very favorites. Yeah, I mean, more to the point, later in Iraq, we traveled all the time. The jump consisted of six Humvees run by my gunner. And I will tell you that there were mornings in July of 05 that I knew we were going out on the road. I think we, outside of the big fights, we probably did hundred over 120 patrols. So what's the regimental commander doing? You have got to get out and lead by walking around. You've got to get battlefield circulation. And you've got to be willing to take the risks that your people are taking. If you're asking them to do it, you better damn sure be well to take it yourself. Yeah. And there were mornings when you literally have to take a fist and drag yourself out of the rack. You know what I mean? And it's just like we're going on the road. And anybody that's been in an IED hit knows what I'm talking about. It is a significant emotional experience. Yeah. So moving from the your company command time, you did spend some time in, in JSOC and working in the J5 and working for the commandant before you took command of 3-8. Anything in that time period worthy of conversation? Because I would love to talk about your battalion command too. JSOC is a neat place, and I'm going to be brief about that. General Favor had served there, and he couldn't, you know, you can't talk a whole lot about every other intricacies. He just told me that if you get the opportunity to serve there, I highly recommend it. So Lefebvre said that to me, yeah, I'm, I'm in. Okay. And I was fortunate enough to get selected to go there. He spent a lot of time in, in the exercise and the liaison divisions, which afforded me the opportunity, because General Zinni was the combatant commander at CENTCOM, Balkans was going on, so they had certain folks who would go down and work the Balkan issues. And I went to the Middle East, and I got to go to virtually every country in the Middle East to work with the ambassadors, 
talk the exercise program, create liaison relationships and things like that, that paid off hugely later on. And part of the learning curve is, yeah, you never build bridges. And in the beginning, we were talking tactics, techniques, procedures, all the neat things to be a great operational guy. And then there's personal relations. And we got it all wrong. You know, it's all about personal relations. I said earlier, this is a people business. Build the bridges, build your relations, build your network, because you're going to see the same guys. Oh, yeah. Through the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, some of my closest friends now come from my tour at JSOC that started in 97. Because of their screening process, you rarely have leadership issues. The issues is how do you keep up with racehorses across the board in what you're doing? Got great leadership, though. I think when I was there, I was a senior Marine at Fort Bragg, not just in the command, but at Fort Bragg. Uh, That's changed now. That's that's much different. We've had general officers, General Donovan, General Huntley serving at JSOC. And that's, I think, a fantastic move forward, because once you serve there, you understand how the war, not the war fighting, but how this nation approaches conflict. Because the decision-making link is that much faster. Yeah, you're right. Colonel McClam in the previous episode talked about the importance of your personal brand, I think is, yep. is another way of saying what you're talking about, how the, you go, you're going to be serving with the same guys and gals for, for a really long time. And you know, I'm coming up on 56 years old, and I'm still in touch with people that I met when I was 22 at the, at the basic school, right? And I look back and I think, I remember back when I was a lieutenant captain, being like, I don't give a shit if that guy doesn't like me. Now he's a three-star. Right. I'm like, maybe yeah. I do care now that you like, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, don't burn your bridges. Don't burn your bridges. I tell you, the beauty of that too is if, you know, you open your blinders, you can learn so much from all your peers and counterparts across the joint spectrum to include the interagency. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if we're willing to take best practices, you know, they're there, continue to be fascinated by the, the force design 2030 fight. You know what I mean? Because right. much of the criticism levied against them is also issues confronted by the soft community, and that's usually absent from the discussion right. that we see right now. So yeah, the leadership's there. In my case, uh, General Mike Canavan, who would personally come brief you if he was sending you out somewhere, or you would go see him and he would brief you, to General Doug Brown, both fabulous leaders, and you could just learn wherever you go from those guys. Is that the General Brown in the Air Force? or No, no, no. Uh, uh, Doug Brown, who uh, became U.S. SOCOM, he's retired now. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I thought I recognized the name, but Brown's kind of common, too. Mm-hmm. You went on to be become, obviously, a, an infantry battalion commander right before 9-11. So 9-11 kicks off, you're a battalion commander. Was that an oh shit moment for you? No. Well, it was a complete shock because I extended to stay my third year at JSOC. Okay. And because of what we were involved in, what we were doing. And uh, Ron Bailey, now Lieutenant General retired, was my monitor. And I had gotten selected on my first look to go command First Force Reconnaissance Company. And I turned it down because I thought what we were doing was important. And I also, you know, personal preference, would have preferred an infantry battalion. And so the second time up, I, I didn't even get looked at, you know, and so I might not be the smartest guy in the game, but 
you know, went from champ to chump overnight. <laughs> and so the question was, okay, what am I going to do? And, you know, extend for a fourth year and retire here and work the GS route. Or I got a call from General Lefebvre. He said, hey, either come up to the Pentagon and work for me in strategic initiatives or else I'll get you sent to Lejeune and you, I'll bring you aboard when I take my mute. Okay. So I thought about it, thought about the family and said, you know, I'm done. So let me go and give Marine Corps a couple more years and see if I can help change institutionally up there. So off I went to a strategic initiatives group. General Lefebvre, I think, left early. And General Whistler, John Whistler, who is one of the finest human beings and leaders and Marines you'll ever meet, was his deputy fleeted up. So I came in as General Whistler's deputy working for General Bedard. Well, we're supposed to be working for the Commandant, but you went through everything, went through General Bedard down at PPNO. And after uh, about 10 months, I got told I no longer work there, go down the hall. And my old MU commander, General Jones, who was then Commandant, I had become his new senior aide. Okay. General Halick was the military secretary. And I was there for a very short time because my third look, I had come up on the alternate list for command. Something happened and 3-8 had opened up and just got asked the question, is that an imposition on your family if you go take command of a battalion? Oh, no, sir, it is not. <laughs> right. That's how I got down there. But, you know, there, there's, there's some serendipity and gifts in this game. And one of my old platoon commanders, who I had for a brief amount of time, is now Major General Dave Odom. And Dave Odom was the three at three eight when I got there. Okay. So with him on board, you know, it became a pretty easy day. We uh, gifted company commander and now Brigadier General Farrell Sullivan, whose brother Danny had been one of my platoon commanders after Desert Storm for a med float. Both of the Sullivan brothers, by the way, were Leftwich Award winners. <laughs> well, I, I knew that about Farrell Sullivan. And Danny too. Yeah. <laughs> Still trying to get General Farrell Sullivan on on the pod here. We're going to work it yeah, out. His, yeah. his schedule's just tight with all of his commands that he's got and everything. Let me tell you, the real secret to leadership is surround yourself with good people and listen to them. I'll tell a quick story about General Sullivan because I had never met him before. But this this goes to like personal brand and that split second that you have to make an impression on somebody that can last for a lifetime. I'm going to share mine with him. Never met the man before. Hadn't even really spoken with him, was communicating through his aide to get him on the podcast. And he had some command challenges that came up and he, and he had to cancel. And it was kind of at the last minute. And on the day that I was supposed to record with him, I was going to TBS for something else. And I pull up into the parking spot and there's a one-star general standing right there where I'm getting ready to park. And he said, hey, Dave, I'm Farrell Sullivan. I just want to come out and personally tell you that I'm sorry that it didn't work out and we'll get it rescheduled. But I'm like, this guy just like was waiting in the parking lot for me to, I was like, so you talk about that split second when you can make an impression on somebody. What a great guy. I, I wish I knew him better because he just seems like such a fantastic guy. But you had some great characters walking around with you, 3-8. No, I just a lot. Yeah, those two were horses. My ops chief, Master Gunnery Sergeant, or then Master Sergeant, wound up working for me at the regiment later on. I mean, it's just, you know, stuff like that. You stick around long enough, you continue to see the same familiar faces type of thing. Right. The 3-8 was interesting, though, because I got there about four weeks later, 9-11 happened. And I had just left the Pentagon working for General Jones. And, of course, the plane slammed into the building and took out the new Navy Command Center with all the guys that we had been working with via the SIG. 
So everybody was turning to what's, what are we going to do about this 9-11 thing? And of course, the Marine Corps initiative was to take a battalion and reform it as the anti-terrorism battalion for the mm-hmm. Marine Corps. And 3-8 got chosen to do that and become part of 4th MEB. I'd like to think that they picked them because, you know, we had some of the people aboard that we did. Is really what you're talking about is how do you equip and deploy small groups of people for specific missions. And by uh, December of 2001, then Captain Sullivan was the commander of about a 100-man detachment at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. Okay. And of course, ironically, 20 years later, he was the last Marine general walking out of Kabul. Right. Right. <laughs> yes. He's got the, the area expert. Yeah. <laughs> if then future regimental commander and now retired Steve Davis goes back to Lieutenant Colonel Steve Davis as battalion commander, what, what are a few things that you would tell him to do differently? You know, I think the thing that jumps out to me, I would have worked more closely with my company commanders. Well, you got a guy like Farrell Sullivan who required nothing. I mean, I am a huge devotee of the old FMFM1, now Marine Corps Doctrinal Pub 1, Warfighting. That is a book I've exported to everybody I know, everybody I've ever taught. Sits on my desk. That's right. See the Lieutenant Armstrong right there? <laughs> it, it breaks this, this endeavor we are involved in into its simplest forms. And you need to understand mission orders and commander's intent and all that neat stuff. But you know, the last thing that I thought I was going to have to dedicate a lot of time to was the training of working with my company commanders. And I don't think I did a great job with them. I mean, we brought them along. There were some that were gifted. There were some that were not so gifted. Staff NCOs were very solid, and I attribute that a lot to uh, then Major Odom, Master Gunny MacArthur. That's my ops chief who I couldn't remember, and those guys. So, you know, solid lieutenant corps that had been brought up. But those guys had been in the battalion. My, uh, my predecessor was a TBS classmate, IOC classmate of mine, Louis Rochelle. He had done a great job with the battalion. So uh, the, real, the real issue there was how do you take them and convert them to this AT mission? And what does that really mean? Where we had to spend a lot of time working up. My regimental commander, Mastin Robison, uh, who I worked for later in Hoa and in uh, Marsoc, just another wonderful, wonderful human being and great Marine. You know, that was easy working within the shell of all that. But there was that whole, well, you're no longer really an infantry battalion. You're doing this and, you know, it comes back to, do you want to operate or do you want to go to a CACS type of thing? Right, right. You had two future general officers in your command. That's, that's pretty incredible. I've heard what you just said, said differently. I'll just re-say it for young leaders. But what I hear a lot of people who have battalion command say is, I wish, they basically said the same thing as you said, but they said it like this. I wish that I had told my XO that he was in charge of all the S shops and everything running the battalion because my job as the commander is to work with and mentor my company commanders. And that is my focus. And they all say, I got so wrapped up in maintenance and supply and personnel and everything else. And I never, I, I look back and wish that I had spent more time with the commanders. I appreciate their perspective. I don't think I had that problem. I had a very solid one and two shop 
three shop, you know, ops is ops, and Odom was running ops, so I didn't have to worry any there. Great gunner. I understood the four business just fine from my time as a four, but it was a shock to me with what we had to deal with on some of the things. But yeah, and not so much mentoring them. It just, it, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's probably some chemistry issues there that didn't work out as well as I would like to. And I take that on as my fault, you know, as a guy that did that, that clearly not create the best environment for the best success to occur. What would you have done differently? Again, in context of the times, I'm not sure because uh, the transformation of what we had to do, you know, it's not like, okay, I've got 48 months in command. And so here's the program that we're going to lead up to. Not to mention, I was in command of three, eight less, one week less than a year because I had gotten selected for promotion and they had to get me off to the war college. I was fighting to stay. And uh, General Bedard was championing that, and that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, everybody should be fighting to stay in command. Yeah. Right? So I, I, I get that. You then went off to Army Command staff, Army Command. Wait, war College. Uh, war, Army War, right? And then you went back to the 4th Meb, right? Well, I'd gotten selected to command 2nd Marine. Actually, I got commands to uh, command 8th Marines. But I got shifted to second Marines because Mark Gaines would have only had eighth Marines for a year. Okay. So they decided to get, you know, because of the, I, probably the exigencies of the war. So I had a year to kill. And General Robinson called me up one night, said, hey, I need you in Hoa. And I figured, well, I've missed the Iraq war. So, yeah, let me go to Hoa with you. And I've been to East Africa before, thanks to my Fort Bragg tour. And uh, off we went. And uh, that was a fabulous year. Okay. And so that was, that was when you actually, you went back over to uh, Marsoc, right? Because there's... No. This okay. is a JTF HOA. Okay. Okay. After JTF HOA... No, I'm sorry. I have it backwards. From JTF HOA, you then assumed command of Second, Second Marines. Marines. Right. Mm-hmm. And as listeners will know, that was... Dale Alford was one of your battalion commanders, Right. Yeah, we uh, we got there, and uh, my predecessor was my old monitor, Ron Bailey. Okay. And Bailey had taken RCT2 to the uh, march up, done a great job, and he really set me up for success. He got a bunch of his staff when they came back from Iraq that he knew were sticking around. He sent some of them to uh, JTF OA, which is really helpful. He, he drafted out of his indigenous battalions to bring up guys, my three now, Colonel Chris Starling sure. was a real gift. And, and I mean, he had a solid cast lined up for me. So when I walked in the door to command, there wasn't going to be a whole bunch of turnover. The issue was whether we were going to stay CONUS or whether we were going to go to Iraq as part of OIF 0406. And it turned out that we were, and that, that turned things on a hard heel to get ready for that. What were your three battalions that you had? I can't recall Dale Alfred's battalion. Was it 3-8? Alfred had 3-6, but Alfred and his gang didn't show up to what I call second semester. I mean, we deployed in February of 05, and those guys didn't show up until either the end of August, beginning of September of 05. So when we went down range, I had the two uh, infantry battalions. I had 325 out of the reserves. 
and one of my own indigenous battalions, 3-2, which is commanded by Tim Mundy. And both of those companies, I'm sorry, both of the battalions had one of their rifle companies stripped out in the MEF op order to provide security to the Al-Assad Air Base. So I had two battalion headquarters, each with two rifle companies and their, their weapons company for an AO that equaled 30,000 square miles. Okay. Now, I had the LAR battalion, which was down in Rootbaugh, uh, commanded then by Rob Cossid, later replaced by General Sparky Renforth, an uh, artillery battery that we split between the two ports of entry down on the Jordanian border and southern part of Syria, which is right close to Al Top now. Okay. So it's about 3,200 Marines and sailors for 30,000 square mile AO. That's an interesting lash up. You know, of course, the you had General Alfred there, and, and listeners go back and, and listen to the the first of two interviews with him, where he talks extensively about his time as three six. But he also talks about you as the regimental commander too, which is initially how I got really interested in you and I having a talk. What were some of the highlights of your regimental command from the perspective of again going back to that second lieutenant Steve Davis and saying, you know, here's some here's some things that are really worth knowing about that I learned as a regimental commander? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Again, I go back to the in-context comment. People think they know lots about that, and you have to put them in context of what period of time they were talking about and where. Example, up in Husaba, where, you know, the 82nd had been up there, could go downtown without any personal protective gear to times when uh, 3-7 was fighting up there and losing Marines. So when we were fighting up 3-2 and later 3-6 with Dale, we're fighting there. To Then you could go back downtown without personal protective gear on. So the, it, it's important to put those things in context. 3-2 and 3-25 had a real hard time because they were grossly undermanned. Uh, we were spread out across the Euphrates River Valley. And so, you know, the leadership challenge, frankly, is, you know, how do you uh, accomplish what you're being told to do and keep your people alive. And I mean, we had, I think you're aware, a rifle company at the POE in uh, Al Qaim, with the Syrian border, a company back at the train station outside of Husaba. 325 had a company in the dam at Haditha and a uh, company outside of Heat. That's a lot of territory. The LAR owned Rootba down south. I mean, yeah. everybody's all over. I mean, you're talking an hour, hour and a half helo ride to go see these guys. Right. You know, now a lot of that's empty desert, so that mitigates some of that problem. But everybody thought the Iraq war, you know, was done after Fallujah. And the reality, it wasn't. Uh, Ramadi, which was not my AO, continued to fester. But everybody they didn't kill, the bad guys, were out and up the Euphrates. And, of course, the rat lines coming in, bringing bombers into Baghdad tells you most of that story. So the whole issue of keeping these guys alive, as long as you had a well-trained, well-armed squad that was on the ball, I never lost a lot of sleep about that. But in the bigger picture, as the guy trying to orchestrate that, it's like, okay, what is going on out here? And how do I take the initiative, you know, from the bad guy? And the issue is, you go back to John Boyd's OODA loop. Right. And you just have to turn faster than they do, get them reacting to you. We took a lot of criticism for that because people say, well, you're playing whack-a-mole out there. 
Answer is no, we're not. We're, uh, we're creating illusionary force structures so they don't know where we are, when we're showing up, and that has to affect them, which eventually worked well. The battalion commanders were great. They were good. They were really good. The company commanders were fantastic. And it would not be uncommon for me to do the two up, one down thing, go down to talk to them directly. Frankie DiOrio, Chris Aiva, and a couple of the others out at 3-2. Guys, you know, they understood the commander's intent. They understand the mission order. They're smart officers operating. Steve Lawson, Chris Douglas over in 325, and there are others, of course. But those are the guys, you know, we swing them from one end of the, the AO to the other just to be able to give a battalion commander two operational companies to maneuver. Right. And that the leadership lesson more senior is that, you know, you got to fight your pay grade. You know, um, I was very sensitive to, and I can't tell you I always executed it well, trying to stay out of battalion commander's hair. Let them fight their fight. It's their right. battalion. And, and they did a good job. And then my saving grace uh, in many ways was uh, General Casey, who was multinational forces Iraq, the four star, came down. Well, two things. Number one, the soft task force started deploying forces out there. And this showed you the, the relationship value of my tour at Fort Bragg because he was all friends of mine right. that I had worked with there. So the integration between Marines and that portion of the Special Operations Committee was seamless. And the non-traditional guys did not understand that. You know, the comment was, you guys don't get along with Army guys. How do you get along with Marines? Yes, we're all friends from the joint days. Yeah. So we were able to exponentially gain from that. But General Vines, who had been a JSOC guy, came down from MNCI to find that out. General Casey wound up following him after his report back. And I think he came to see me six or seven times during the subsequent six months. And... We knew we were losing 3-2 and 3-25 at the semester break, I call it, end of August. And that's where General Alfred brought 3-6 over. 3-1 came in to replace 3-25. But General Casey plussed me up from my 3,200 Marines and Sailors to over 14,000 Okay, uh, with Army battalions, the Iraqi brigades and that. So, you know, the regimental staff, you had to provide the guidance for them to be able to incorporate some very non-traditional stuff at that level. But the beauty is, Commander 3-1, General Alfred, we had all served together at Paris Island. Okay. So there wasn't a whole lot of getting to know you. You know, everybody, it's a very incestuous relationship in a lot of ways. Yeah. That gets back to the comment that we made a while back about personal brand and building relationships and building bridges. The Marine Corps gets really small really fast. <laughs> it does. Yeah. And your ability together as a group of people who know each other and have built bridges to draw on each person's individual experience outside of the Marine Corps, whether it's the soft community or serving with the army or something like that, those skills become really valuable to an interdependent team like that. And yeah, that's where the, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. Like, did I say that right? You know what I mean? Two plus two equals five kind of thing. Yeah. But- you know, leading up to this, you you characterized offline that your 2005, 2006 time in Iraq it was a seminal tour and how what you learned as a Marine and a leader throughout your career to that point impacted what you did as a regimental commander and how the Haditha incident had a huge impact at multiple different levels. 
Can you share some of the lessons that can be gained from those experiences? And can you talk about those lessons from dealing with the impact of that incident and how you've tried to take lemons and turn them into lemonade, as you said about an hour ago? Yeah, real hard to take lemons and turn it to lemonade with uh, what happened up at Haditha, which is clearly a tragedy in so many ways. It's a failing of leadership, and that's my leadership as the guy that's responsible for creating the environment for success to occur, that occasion Marines falling off the moral high ground. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get into the guts of what happened. That's out there uh, in, in public forum. Hey, people can read about that on the internet. And that, that that's tragic in just a whole lot of ways. Obviously, a lot of people lost lives there that shouldn't have the impact on the national effort was profound. And there's lots that go into that. But what I would say to that is, is that happened concurrently while Steel Curtain was underway, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the largest operation, numerically at least, that the Marine Corps has done since Fallujah too. And I think that gets lost in that. The fact that MNCI, MNFI, had constructed two combat outposts north of Huseba because we were told that nobody could take Huseba. We took it in two and a half days, the RCT. And it spent millions of dollars. General Whistler was in charge of the logistic effort that had to build those things so they could just isolate that. So that's what our focus was on uh, when that incident occurred. I had a trusted battalion commander and a battalion that was doing wonderful things up that corridor, had executed Operation Rivergate. So I felt full trust and confidence in him, although we never were able to observe or impact on their train up prior to receiving them as forces. But it's just, you know, it's a big boy ballpark out there. It's a hardball ballpark. Yeah. And these things happen. It doesn't excuse anything that happened out there. I wish we had been a little bit more inquisitive. I mean, I had a solid rear that was handling those areas while we were fighting the fight out there. But that is my responsibility. And you got to understand as a leader, it doesn't matter what level you're at. You know, it is your responsibility. Right. And, you know, these things happen. The facts were unclear. Any more facts to us? I mean, there's, a, I think, initial reports of, you know, 14 dead in this encounter. But the information relayed to us was consistent with many other incidents like that. Uh, and I'm not sure people understood the scale of the killing out there, whether it was intertribal whether it was Al-Qaeda-driven, uh, AQI, and stuff like that, I guess what I would caution people to is that you have to be able to pull yourself, I guess, out of the trees a little bit to see the forest and always be on the lookout for those things. That was the last thing in my mind that you essentially had a cover-up that that would happen down there, that you know it was not reported up. Uh, you know, it was reported piecemeal, if you will, so that old adage, you need to inspect, not expect, doesn't right. go away at whatever level. And where you go from there, I mean, there's been a lot of second, so much second guessing. It's like, well, I've tried to take those lemons to make lemonade. Uh, in my retirement life, we have supported many of the Naval Special Warfare Unit deployments. And uh, upon Admiral McRaven's request to his forces that they start looking uh, at what he termed at the time misguided loyalty. You know, we gave, I put together a brief on this for the operators to talk to them about 
exactly this when you are confronted. There was nothing that we were not transparent about, but the whole issue of the moral high ground. I mean, I was a bartender long enough in my previous life to have a number of Vietnam veterans come through looking for answers in the bottom of a bottle, and they don't exist. And yeah. I was determined not to let that happen to my guys. So, you know, the moral issues, there's legitimate errors, there are illegitimate errors, there are sins of commission, there are sins of omission. So, you know, you have got to stay on top of that. I thought that we were on top of it. I was clearly wrong. So you can trust, but you've got to inspect type of thing. I obviously didn't have those problems with General Alfred. Alfred would have been happy if I'd left him alone. He could have run wild by himself up in that area. <laughs> but you know, the fear was the fear was always that, you know, we're trying to push people away from Ramadi. And if we had to keep them out near the Syrian border, we would. Uh, Alfred out there was a known quantity. We have served multiple tours together, starting with the first Gulf War. He and General Journey are brothers. So, you know, it's very, very close. No question with that. It's just uh, unfortunate that a real good battalion over at Haditha had that slip up. But it can happen. And uh, it kind of gets to that balance as a leader that you've got to figure out. I trust the guy, you know, how much do I have to overwatch him? I mean, with General Alfred, they they were holding positions. Their snipers were across the Emerald Wadi up there, and they were having a great day. And you know, he wanted to push, and I was like, "No, I can't have you push." You know, you have to slow him down. But that's just an operational issue, not as much a leadership issue. He got it, he adjusted, and because it's got to fit into a bigger picture. And so, for the, the younger guys going out there, uh, I mean, I just say, you know. If what you're doing is right and wrong, this wasn't a whole lot of ambiguity. Right. Yeah, you can color it how you want to color it, but you know, it's your lie. You can tell it the way you want it, type of thing. So, yeah, because I think you're right. It was wrong at the very basic squad level. And then, then you're way up here at the regiment, and there's all of this information filter and delay and fog of war, let's call it, things that are going on. Probably pretty clear that what happened, how much of the obfuscation of the facts i'll just say it like that was a function do you think of the you use the term misguided loyalty i do feel like that there is this hey when you deploy with a unit they're your brothers and sisters you're a family you take there's this quote-unquote take care of each other and that term can be boundless unless it's given some boundaries yeah. do you think that some of that obfuscation of the of, of what happened was a function of a misguided we take care of our family kind of thing and while there was a mistake did some of those emotional issues factor into some what were ultimately bad decisions in terms of not getting to the bottom of it quicker yeah i think i think that's very fair statement and question the incident started with an ied strike and the receiving a small arms fire mm -hmm. it killed a real popular marine I think the reaction to that was probably emotional. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're taking fire. You, you, you fight through the ambush. That's what we teach. That's what we right. do without getting into the guts of all that. I think that's what started it. And I think I'm not the guy on the ground, but the problem, as much as the problem is the tactics of what happened there, was it not being reported accurately and then inaccurate statements being passed up to my level and 
you know, the job of the of the subordinates are you got to put the picture together, you know, not give me a piece here, a piece here, a piece here, and make it my job to assemble your your picture. Does that make sense? It does. That's why I think it's so hard for junior leaders. And maybe I didn't ask the question right or say it right. I'll try it again. But we have this sense of loyalty to our unit and our people and our brothers and sisters, but those aren't boundless. And I think the hard thing for a leader to do is figure out like, okay, I'm loyal, but only to a point. I'm loyal to a point to where you're now asking me to lie or cover up to take care of something that you did that was fundamentally wrong to begin with. I think that's a tough thing. But there are future leaders that are going to hear this podcast, even they're going to say, they're, they're going to be faced with this decision someday of, hey, something bad happened. I know it's wrong. Do I try to obfuscate it and hope nobody sees it? Or do I report it up and send some people to court martial potentially? Yeah, well, there it is. Yeah, the Marine that died, Miguel Terrazas, by all accounts, a great Marine that, that kicked off that incident. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the story. But here's the takeaway from it. It's like, if you're going to take a bite of an unpleasant sandwich, mm-hmm. take the small bite, not the big bite. Right. Well, that's a great way to put it. That's no easier way. Wrong is wrong, but it's much easier to deal with if you get out there first. Not because of public relations and everything else. I mean, Haditha had resounding effect that went all the way to Capitol Hill and into our political system. It is an unfortunate thing. And again, people while read the quotes that are within the battalion. It's in the investigation out there. They can do that. But clearly, the command chain broke down by not saying, hey, we got a, a, something bad down here. Yeah, it means some of your guys are going to get in trouble. But that's minimal compared to you know, the damage it did to the overall effort. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's part of that moral courage thing. You talk the difference between physical courage, moral courage. Physical is easy compared to the moral. And it's at the whole misguided loyalty issue is yeah. a challenge. And I think, it's, I think it's, it's not something you can sit through a class at TBS or Sergeant's course or Staff NCO Academy and learn about. It's all instinct. It's, it's very hard. There's no answer. There's no answer to know when you have to dig deeper. You've just got to know in your gut that something doesn't feel right. Yeah. And, and here's the other thing that I think compounds it too. And I'd like to ask you this question too, because I'm fascinated by what I have seen is this just incredible shift in the weaponization of information. Mm-hmm. So when you and I were at TBS in the, in the early 90s, you either had a newspaper or CNN 24 hour coverage of Desert Shield, Desert Storm was like a new thing. Never, if you wanted to know what was going on in the Vietnam War, you tuned into the seven o'clock news and you, and you saw Walter Cron- Cronkite or something like that. Now it's people with cell phones and the immediacy of information and the, the ability to use information as a weapon. I wonder how much that even further complicates a commander's ability to assess what's going on because you can be immediately impacted by deliberate disinformation that can form an opinion one way or the other of things. And, and coming back to, to Farrell Sullivan, I'll tell you that I think one of the most interesting conversations I would, I would want to have with him is, how are you dealing with all of the information that was flying all over the place in, in real time? I don't think commanders have ever had to deal with that in the past. And, and you did, and he did. And, and I think it's, God, it's, it's such, a, such an important thing to learn how to fight in that domain. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And in context, again, I mean, what I went through, I think we were cutting edge at the time. Uh, we're anecdotal now. 
My predecessor, RCT7, was Craig Tucker, who did a great job and was a smart, smart guy. Uh, he told me, you know, there's a great story out here, but if you don't tell it, it's not going to get told. Right. And so we took that aboard. I think Jana Raff was the first major CNN reporter at the time. And we brought him out. And, you know, as a commander, you realize I've got about four audiences to influence. I've got to influence the enemy. Mm-hmm. I've got to influence the local people. I've got to influence the American people and an international audience. And the one that I care about most is the enemy, because the main thing is to keep the main thing, and that is getting after disrupting and destroying insurgent organizations and activity in my AO. So some of the things, if you go back and look in the press, the comments that were made, you're like, God, that's kind of like a bonehead thing to say. Well, there's a deliberate reason for that. But we, em- we embrace the press. You know, the, my rules for the press were very simple. I interviewed personally every reporter coming into my AO every time they came in. Mm-hmm. And I had a one to 50,000 map up on the bulkhead. And if they were new to the AO, I gave them a quick synopsis. Where do you want to go? What do you want to see? And if I could make that happen, I would. If they were returning, then I'd catch them up from the last time they were there. And all I asked from them is, tell the truth, be respectful of my casualties so I can make sure I notify any next-of-kin type stuff before you go. That's, you know, basically the rules. And if they respect going offline, which I know is a public affairs no-no, mm-hmm. then I can put things in context for it. And I really never got violated by anybody. And I mean, I had everybody from Richard Engel and Arwood Damon out there on a routine basis. Now, the other side to that is twofold. Number one, they will give you information that you would not get from anywhere else. It's just in conversation. This would happen, which helps me understand my battlefield beyond the ground much further out there. And I understand the difference between public relations and info operations. And I think as a friend of mine, an SF Special Forces friend says, you know, it's easier to get permission to put a bullet in somebody's head than it is to put an idea out there. <laughs> you know, it's like if all of a sudden we're doing something and I've got press reporting on it, the bad guy's probably not looking elsewhere. And that way, you know, I can set up for my next fight or wherever I'm trying to keep my enemy off balance. So I think the press was very, very helpful. There was only one reporter. I had some hard feelings about one of the articles she wrote early on after uh, Operation Matador, our first big operation. But come to find out, she told the truth. So I can't quibble with that. You know what I mean? We, 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 We got the fight from the hard ground, high ground, and that's our job. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm going to take some license with this. I'll probably get blasted on social media for saying this, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll live, I promise. You know, Comstrat, as they call PA now, Comstrat is quickly becoming a combat arms MOS. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fight in that domain is real. And if you're a public affair, well, in our days, right, the public affairs officer, Comstrat, you're not clipping things out of the newspaper and making the early bird anymore. That's not what Comstrat does. I mean, they are they are literally fighting in a domain where the ammunition and the weapons being used is information in the forms of ones and zeros. It's it's a domain. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the problem is there's a lot of folks that have preceded me in this business that don't understand that. 
Yeah, they, they think that info ops is, oh, yeah, that's just a thing you do. Just, just give me some of that. The whole issue of cyber and that integration changes how we have to. I'm not telling you it changes the nature and character of war. I wouldn't be that bold. But it is certainly tools that you have to have just as much as you got to have a hammer, a sledgehammer for kinetics. Yeah. And frankly, you got to use the other more up front and throughout. Right. I'll use a current example if you're familiar with it, and I'm I'm not an expert on this at all. So I'm just going to say, are you familiar with the disbanding of the sniper community in the? Oh yeah. Okay. All right. So I again, I'm not a sniper. I don't know anything about that community, and I'm not going to say anything one way or the other. But let's just say for a second that the reason to get rid of them was absolutely the right thing to do. I'm not saying it is or isn't. I'm just saying to make my point, you got to set that up. Let's just say it was the right thing to do. Well. The decision makers got slaughtered in social media and the press because everyone else took the narrative of what was going on there and spun it their way about what was happening rather than coming out and communicating the reason that decision was made. And the information war was lost in five seconds of that that message coming out. And, and again, I'm not saying their decision was wrong. I, there's probably a lot of – as a matter of fact, the people who made that decision are way smarter than I am. So I'm just going to assume that it was the right thing to do. <laughs> Okay, I just will. I don't know what the reason is, but I'm just going to assume it was the right thing to do. Much to everybody's chagrin, okay? Where it got lost was in the information war. It was disseminated in a message, which is very impersonal, and was just absorbed and twisted in the digital medium to paint everybody as being stupid and making this decision. I thought, why wasn't this just communicated better? That's an example of how you lose the information war. Totally agree with you. I would just say that I think that there is a whole lot to the forces I-2030, but I think that there's a whole lot of consideration needs to be given to some of the the issues of capabilities. Now, to your point, I think that there's probably a mid-ground here, particularly mitigating what the, the, the critics have to say about it, and that the the rollout, if that's the right word, or the, the information operation to explain what we're doing has been pathetic. Now, that having been said, that's just one guy talking and observing from the cheap seats. Mm-hmm. What may have been the decision is, you know, we're going to take fire for this. We are convinced that this is the right way forward, and we're not going to waste the time and effort on trying to win this info war or not, because at the end of the day, you know, the commandant's got a four-year term to make this thing happen. Mm-hmm. Presumptively, his successor will take it on board with the same zeal, but you don't know that. Right. So I think there may be some of that, but I'm a huge fan of our snipers. I, I did not read that closely enough, perhaps. I understand they're taking them out of the infantry battalions. I don't know that they're getting rid of that capability altogether, but part of that mitigation, I think, is, you know, you got an ACOG on every rifleman's rifle. Right. You know, and we train to that. Is it the same thing? No. Is it different than what we used to? Yeah. You know, that old, you know, you got to get comfortable in your discomfort. There's something to be said for that. I come back to it wasn't communicated in anything other than a message that dropped on everybody's desk at 07 when they walked into work and an entire MOS community was wiped out. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's probably got to do with the cost benefit and and benefit being in terms of employment capability. I mean, you go back and look at the reconnaissance community when MARSOC stood up and they built a nucleus of them out of the first and second force reconnaissance existing companies. 
So, okay, what do we what do we need the reconnaissance community to look like? The answer, in my opinion, is it morphed is we don't need force reconnaissance companies. And I know that hurts a lot of my friends' hearts mm-hmm. because that's our baby. That's you know, I was not a force recon guy. I was a battalion recon guy across two battalions and one ionized station. But at the end of the day, you know, battalion reconnaissance used to work within the fan of our friendly artillery fire when it was a force troop. Force reconnaissance troops worked beyond that. They were smaller. Why? Because there was not that great a need for what they were doing. So many of us campaigned for in the reorganization after the standup of MARSOC. You got MARSOC, which is a special operations component command. It is OPCON to U.S. SOCOM, not the Marine Corps, supplied and supported by them. That's how it works. We can talk about that another time. So what does the reconnaissance community look like? Why don't we just have reconnaissance Marines? And they do everything, all the missions, regardless of the force commander they're assigned to. And as I've been told the stories, that was prevailed upon at the last moment for one of the commandants to say, no, yeah, we're going to keep the force reconnaissance companies. And that's a throw to nostalgia. Yeah. You know, and so, but was there a lot of hue and cry? Absolutely. And I'll get hate mail for that comment too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know it probably feels like we've only been on here for 15 minutes, but we're at the end of our time here. I, but so I, I always like to wrap this up by just asking you, what question didn't I ask that is critical to you conveying some of your leadership moments to the emerging leader generation that's sitting out there right now listening to this? You know, I I go back to just some of the basics that I've tried to live by and tried to teach. You got to be brilliant in the basics. You know, you got to train your Marines. You got to trust them. You got to develop situational awareness at all levels. In my case, I'd like to execute with a sense of urgency. Um, I'm a big fan of John Boyd and the OODA loop, you know, and understanding how the tempo of the battlefield works. You got to create that environment for success to occur. Absolutely critical. Your job as a leader, you know, maintain your high standards, your professionalism. We didn't talk about reporting, but you got to report what you see, what, what is happening. Not what you want to have happen, not what your boss wants to have happen, but what you're no kidding getting. You know, what do I know? Who needs to know? Did I tell them? Did they get it? Did they understand it? Basic stuff we teach at OCS Mm -hmm. is really important, particularly in this day and age of disinformation and fakes and things like that. The guys out there now are better trained, better equipped than we've ever been. But they have also not understood or ever operated in, an, in a time of want. Ever since 9-11, we've had more than what we've needed by far and most everything we've wanted. We've got generations of Marines that don't know how to make stuff happen out of nothing. And that's something that I'd counsel them to be aware on. Integrity counts. Do what's right. You do what's right when nobody's looking. You, you know, you're smart guys. You wouldn't be where you are if you weren't. Be accountable for the results, the good and bad. You know, we've joined the greatest fighting organization in the world. And whatever it morphs into, it is still going to be that. Train them hard. You know what I mean? Train them smart. It, uh, develop the teamwork. Take care of each other. Take care of your family. It's just the basics of our business. 
but it really comes down to that keeping it simple. Don't confuse efforts with results. And don't confuse enthusiasm with capability. That's a Pete Schoolmaker from Desert One. That's a good one. I like to tell people, and I'm probably missing something here, but you know, war fighting in and of itself is not hard business as long as you understand your people, what you're trying to do, what your commander's intent is. So keep it simple because it will get complicated and very complex the minute you cross the line of departure. And when the shooting starts, when the casualties start, it gets overwhelmingly complex. So as long as you can block and tackle and run football parlance, you can probably play this game well. It doesn't need to be Hail Mary passing attacks. You've got to be good at the basics to a muscle memory fault. And that yeah. includes now info. It includes cyber. It's a hugely more complex environment where you've got to do the basics well than we ever had to deal with. Right. It's, it's definitely a much more complicated battlefield now than it was 30 years ago. And that's why I think you sharing your experiences with listeners on this medium is, is so important because it gives them a frame of reference to not only hear once, but come back to multiple times. So thank you so much for your time, Colonel Steve Davis. Really appreciate uh, you spending some time today. And I know you're off to go see uh, General Odom. So pass on my hello and I'll maybe make a pitch for him to be on the pod for me. There you go. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for what you're doing for all of us in the community. Thank you. It's it's, it's my honor. And smashing hits, make it hard to adapt to this. Put pizzazz and jazz in this, the cash in this, master this, blast this, and make a crap to this. DJ.